Good, right? You got all that down? Just got it, got it, got it. We just wanted to do that to try and help you kind of wrap your minds around Malachi and what's going on in that period. And uh, you guys have an outline on you or at newbreak.church, however you're following along. We are going to be using the message translation. It's actually a paraphrase of the Bible. You can follow it along in uh, NIV or ESV or whatever you have, but it'll be a little bit wonky for you. So I Facebooked that this week to try and help you understand. You can go to version and load up the message. We are leaping into the second chapter of uh, Malachi. We are, we are skipping the first part. Last weekend, I had Pastor Carter come and talk with you about uh, the Bible's view of missional and missional living. How many of you were here last weekend? You got to hear Pastor Carter? Awesome. 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 If you didn't hear that sermon, you can go on our website you can go right, on our, and our webpage. watch that from yeah. last week. Having said that, Pastor Danny did part one at the OB campus. Yeah. So I had them kind of switch campuses, which is why he's up here. Because yeah. I wanted him to talk to you about, just briefly, like what was the first uh, message in the series about? So last week we kicked off this brand new series uh, called All In. And what we're saying, the preface behind that is, if your heart's all in it, you're all in it. And what we're looking at is the book of Malachi. And if you grew up in church or you haven't grown up in church, Malachi's not one of those popular books per se. It's kind of a doom and gloom little bit of book. It's called an oracle, and an oracle is a technical or a prophetic term for a message of judgment. And Malachi being the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, which all prophets are, they speak for God. God has a message usually of judgment that he's passing on to the Israelites. And we see the Israelites now in a complete train wreck. They're a hot mess, basically. And really, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, which leads into like 400 years of silence. And Malachi is bringing this judgment on, uh, this message of judgment but what he does in chapter 1 is he kind of sets it up. He, he tells them, he reminds them of God's unfailing love. And in fact, in, message, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about this. He'd reminded them of what he had done. And he says this in, in verse 5. He says, yes, take a good look. Then you'll see how faithfully I loved you. And you'll want even more, saying, may God be even greater beyond the borders of Israel. And then we looked at worship, really what they were defiling. They were offering like hand-me-down or like uh, broken almost offerings. They're like, you're offering me this fattened calf by your mouth, but yet you're bringing me your sick and diseased animals that you don't want anyways. And the text really get, went after this idea of God telling us what he wants in worship. Priority, honor, respect. He doesn't want like our second best. He wants our best. And it was just a great chapter to remind us of the question that we ask all the time is, are you committed to beginning your week in worship? And that's really two ways for us as a church, individually with our prayer and our devotional, and then as a church on Sunday. Are you committed to be here on Sunday, to be a part of worship, to celebrate what God is doing in your life, or seek prayer for the tough times, and to celebrate together who God is as a church? Awesome. So. Awesome. And that's chapter one. You guys can read it uh, at another time. But we're going to be in chapter two. Give Danny a hand awesome. for helping us out. Yeah. I just wanted him to kind of set rewind for you. And once more, you can watch that uh, message, obviously, on the website. So, but this weekend is about being committed to community in general, and then particularly about being committed in our marriages, because gonna, we're going to deal straight up with the subject of divorce and remarriage and all of that. Uh, and in and, and your life groups and in your serving teams, it's about being committed to each other. And when you're committed to each other and you go through experiences, it kind of gels you, it kind of makes you tighter almost as, as, a, as a unit, if I could put it. Uh, and, and I had this experience, of course, over the last couple of weeks because 
where was I? In Israel, right. And I was with my life group. I took my life group there. There were 13 of us. This is a, group, a picture shot. I'm, I'm this guy. I just thought I'd <laughs> clarify. Uh, the one with no hair. Anyway, uh, this is Ted and Steve and Andy. And, and, and it was just an amazing experience together to be there. Um, I've known all these guys for a long time. In fact, Andy, once upon a lifetime, was our youth pastor way, way back in the day uh, when we first were in Tierra Santa. He was our youth pastor. And, and Steve, uh, Steve lost his wife this past year. I did the memorial service for Steve and watching him grow through that. And Ted and I have been friends forever. Ted's a member of our board and, and everything. And, and where are we? Does anyone know where we are? Okay. So I learned a lot of things on this trip. I've been there a lot of times. I have never been with the kind of scholar I have been with. His name is Mark Turnage. Yeah, and yes, by the way, we will take another trip next October with Mark to the Holy Land, okay? So a lot of you are like, what? How come you didn't broadcast it, blah, blah, blah? I am now, okay? We're going to go next October. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it takes time to plan it. Anyway, Mark spent six years of his graduate work in Israel studying in Israel. Uh, he studied with the greatest Jewish minds that there are living today, and all kinds of Christian minds as well. He has a master's degree and a PhD. He speaks Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, to say the least. Those are only three of the languages he's fluent in. And he is an archaeologist. He's a historian. He's a philosopher. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met, and most uh, well-educated people I've ever met. And he taught us a lot of things. And Part of why I'm showing you this picture is because, yes, we often, and I have referred to it as the wailing wall. Having said that, I want to correct our language. To a Jew, certainly in the Holy Land, to refer to their most holy place as the wailing wall is very insulting. Okay? Very insulting. Uh, it's seen almost as a, in, a, in a certain way, almost racially charged, okay? So let's correct our language. It's called the Western Wall, okay? Everybody say that with me. Western Wall, which, uh, of course, it is the Western Wall of the Temple Mount, where the temple was until uh, AD 70, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. But, and then uh, now on top of the Temple Mount, does anybody know what's there now? Yeah, the Dome of the Rock. It's, the, it's one of the most holy places in an Islamic world. And it's built on the, you know, supposedly on the exact same site as uh, Herod's temple in the case of, of that temple. So, but this is like one of the holiest places in a Jewish world because they go here and, and, and pray. They pray. And by the way, I prayed for you there. I put scrolls of new break in the cracks of the wall. And that's, that's what I did. I spent quite a bit of time there and, and uh, you know, not even as much time as I would like. But, but my group, my small group, like, gel. That's the will of God for you. It's for you to get into a life group and gel. It's certainly the case in surviving the holidays with CR and uh, divorce care and all that. But for, your, for you to gel with people where you experience the unity that God has for you in your lives. And you experience this, which is the theme idea of Malachi. Yes, it is judgmental because God is prophesying into a busted up, busted down uh, Israel at this point in time. But the, 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 the defining line of, of Malachi is, I love you. 
I love you. No matter what's going on in your life, God loves you. Now, at this time, as you saw, all of you memorized the video, so you now know we're in 430 B.C. We are in the, what's called the post-exilic days. We are in the days after Babylon had come and conquered the southern kingdom in 586 and taken the Babylonians captive. That's where you get the book of Daniel from. We now are past the 70 years. The, the, the Israelites, not all of them, but many of them then came back to the Holy Land. And there's where you have Ezra and Nehemiah, the kind of reforms that came through Ezra and Nehemiah. But they're very still uh, wonky and everything. And then you had Zerubbabel allow them to build the temple and so forth. And, and so the temple's built again. But they're, as Danny said, their worship has become uh, very bad, very unholy very ungodly, even though they're still worshiping. And this is a danger to us, how you approach this room, like why you are here, like what's going on. And, and Malachi is addressing this cycle that happens where God blesses his people, like he blesses you. And then you get sort of spoiled. You get complacent. You get, you get lethargic spiritually. And so then God has to discipline you. Why? Because he doesn't like you? No, because he loves you. Hebrews tells us this. The Bible tells us this over and over. Malachi 1 says this. But he disciplines you because he is the perfect father. And, and you know, well, then what happens when he disciplines us? Then we start to pray. It's oftentimes when people come to church, they're coming in crisis. That's why you have to be sensitive every weekend. Like we're about to go into the holidays. Like at Christmas, we have all kinds of new guests. And you have to be sensitive every week because they're going through a crisis. And that's generally why people are coming. Even little crises, like, you know, and it's not little, like when you guys move, right? Especially you guys are in the military, you get transferred here, right? So you're dislocating from some other place and coming here. It's very hard, although I must, must say you are amazing at how you do it. <laughs> but, but whatever, you just always have to be sensitive to this. Because, and then anyway, then when God's disciplining us, then we seek God again, and then he begins to bless us again. And then the danger of that is what? Complacency, right? So what happens in our relationships when we allow our heart to drift from God? Okay, what happens? Let's go to Malachi chapter 2. Go to Malachi chapter 2 in, in your Bibles. Now, again, I'm going to use the message translation. By the way, one word. Did I say this in the service about the outline? I'm going to follow the outline for a little while, and then I'm going to totally break. Okay? So we're not going to do the Johannine passage that's down on the bottom we're going to go instead to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, okay? So I'm just telling you ahead of time. I had all these people. I, my, maybe I didn't say it in the last service because I had all these people come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, what goes in these blanks? <laughs> Which I love. I'm just saying. I'm not going to fill in those blanks. So whatever. Uh, deal with it. <laughs> okay, look at, uh, look at uh, Malachi chapter 2. Uh, and again, I'm reading from the message translation, all right? It's, and I misspoke. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. Uh, it's not a translation. NIV is a translation, RSV, ESV, whatever. But uh, this is a trans uh, paraphrase. So he says, verse 10, don't we all come from one father? Aren't we all created by the same God? So why can't we get along? Now, this is a statement in general in Malachi about humanity. Okay? This is a statement about your neighbor. This is a statement about everybody on your street, everybody in your workplace, everybody in your world. It's a statement of God in general. Now, he's going to apply it into marriage. 
okay? She's going to go after marriage. But, but just in general, I, w- I just want, you, I want that to sink in for a moment. Uh, next week, I think it is, we're going to talk a little bit more about, like when the, the leaders come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? So what does Jesus do? He summarizes the Old Testament. He gives them what is today known as the Shema. That actually happens uh, along Israel's journey, where the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, becomes super important. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, right? And then he combines Leviticus 19.18, which they had done by then. The Jews at Jesus' day, they had already begun to, to combine those ideas. So it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And a lot of times we have the problem of loving ourselves, and so we're pretty jacked up when it comes to this for a number of reasons, all right? But that's what's happening, okay? And that's, that's kind of the opening thesis, if you will, of, of uh, Malachi 2, especially at the pivot verse of 10. It's going to go, like I said, into the subject of marriage. So he says, why do we desecrate the covenant of our ancestors that binds us together? He's referring to the marriage covenant as well as the covenants of God with the people of God, okay? Uh, Judah has cheated on God. That's just a brilliant way of putting it here. A sickening violation of trust in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the holiness of God by falling in love and running off with foreign women. Now, just a second. This is not a statement of prejudice or bigotry or like foreigners or whatever. In the biblical world, foreigners were also referred to as aliens who would come into the Holy Land for different reasons. Remember, the Holy Land is the land bridge between Egypt and Damascus. It's one of the most important trade routes that there was. It was incredible economic power and an incredible economic strategy and missional strategy when God calls Abraham from, the, from Ur of the Chaldees to ultimately go to what we know today as Israel. It was incredibly strategic on God's part. And because of this, it's a, it's a PowerPoint where the gospel ultimately can go to the whole world. Okay? But what he means by foreign women, you have to finish the line. Look, look at what it says. It says, women who worship alien gods. Okay? In other words, they're polytheists. They're bringing their gods into the land of Israel, and it's corrupting the people of God in Israel because they're already jacked up from coming back from the diaspora in Babylon and the rest of the world, okay? So it's very, very deliberate, he's saying. God's uh, curse on those who do this, God's judgment on those who do this, drive them out of house and home. They are no longer fit to be part of the community, no matter how many offerings they bring to God of the angel armies. And here is a second offense. You fill the place of worship with your whining and sniveling. Doesn't this sound just like us? Our whining and our sniveling, and God comes to us and says, would you like a little cheese with your wine? And look at, what he, look at how he puts it. This is brilliant. Because you don't get what you want from God. Isn't that the story of our lives? You know, how many of you, for you, God has often been a little too slow, right? Hurry up, God. Hurry up, God. Hurry up, God. Why haven't you answered my prayer? I've been praying this prayer for a whole year. <laughs> so funny. Anyway, he says, do you know why? Simple. 
because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride. And now you are, you've broken those vows, broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Well, lots of things, but he wants godly families. He wants children of God. That's what. That's why our kids' ministry is so important and our student ministry is so important. But parents, listen to me. You cannot think that because we have a kick in kids' ministry and a kick in students' ministry that you are not the chief spiritual caregiver and uh, educator in your home. You are absolutely the most crucial person in your home, period. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, holy cow, man. I don't hardly know anything in there. This Bible's a big old honking thing. That's right. So you better take notes. You better pay attention. You better do your homework. You better game up, period. Well, but my kid's already eight, so you're late. So you got to go. That's just exactly what's happening. Anyway, um, so guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. Now, you have one of the most famous lines in the Bible right here, and a lot of people misunderstand it. God says, I hate divorce. But don't we all? If we hear it right, you might write this down. God does not ever hate divorced people. Let it in. Get it right. The church has been very, very judgmental toward divorced people, for which we all need to ask forgiveness. This is why we have divorce care in our church. But God hates divorce. So do I. Everybody I know has ever been a th- Nobody goes through a divorce and goes, man, that was awesome. Let's do that again. Let's do it again in a few years. <laughs> Nobody. Anyway, uh, uh, he says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down and don't cheat. Now, those of you who are more familiar with my story, you know some of this. And many of you aren't, so I thought I'd share just for a moment about it. When I was young, I lived, I was not a Christ follower. I didn't become a Christ follower until I was an adult. I lived with several different women, one of whom I lived with her for a little bit longer of a time, and we, uh, she got pregnant, we have a daughter. We have a daughter. Uh, her name is Rain. She's now 46. Um, I had her when I was 12. <laughs> Do the math. Anyway, yes, I am old. Whatever, deal with it. <laughs> I'm just saying... Uh, now, we never married, and it was very, very difficult. Uh, Ray, uh, Connie, my ex, if you will, we never married, but Connie told me I wasn't the dad. It was very complex. It was a very difficult time in my life. And, and I, you know, I had to deal with this over the course of my life. I still do, obviously. Rain's 46. And, and I'm just saying, even though I was never di- married and divorced, I, I still know a lot about what it's like. Plus, I've been through thousands of marriages and divorces vicariously at this point in my ministry because I've been doing this a long time. So I know the trauma and the drama. I just want you to understand that I can pr- kind of relate with you, and I, especially if you had children in the marriage. 
and I, I get the whole complexity of blended marriage and, and all the you know, trauma and complexity of that as, as you go along. And, and, and so I know what it's like. And so I, I guess why I'm saying this is I don't want you to hear judgment from me. I just want you to hear biblical value. Okay? I want you to hear process. I want you to hear healing because what happens in life, and particularly in marriage, but in all of our relationships, we start allowing conflict to creep into our relationship. It, it just is a natural part of life. It's, it's just that we mishandle it, and we don't necessarily notice it all the time. This is why uh, you might write this down. Your relationship with God both affects you and infects you. And your relationship with God is contagious, actually. It spreads to the people around you. The people around you are going to know God really through you. You are the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. And so you're either miss, and all of us do mismessage this because nobody's perfect. So all of us are sending this mixed signal, in my case, to my wife, Teresa, my kids. I have three of them, my grandkids. So the key is me constantly working on my relationship with God. But conflict will kind of tip me to when I'm kind of running on the edge, when I'm running on empty, and when I'm leading on empty, to quote Wayne Cordero's book. And that's why his opening salvo is this. Why can't we get along since we're all from the same father? Why is it that this isn't working in us? Why can't we get along? Because in Christ, certainly as New Testament people, we can. Can we have perfection this side of heaven? No. (laughs) But one of our core values is make it better. Can we make it better? Can Can we get to another plane? Now, yes, when we get to that better place, there's going to be another bunch, a whole bunch of work in the next stage. And I've been through a lot of stages of marriage, <laughs> like, you know, like a lot. I have, what do I have? Nine grandkids. And my oldest grandson is 26. And then the little girls, the twins, they're like three. So I've been through a lot of stages, okay? And, and we sometimes miss the priority of unity, which is huge in Malachi. There's all kinds of, now write this down, by the way. Write this value down. Love does not mean agreement. Love does not mean agreement. Do you think that Teresa and I agree on everything? Do you think Pastor Marcus and I agree on everything? No. Love doesn't necessarily mean agreement. It means love. And sometimes even more powerfully, in spite of disagreement which Teresa was amazing at loving me when we first got married. I, wa- I mean, I still am a bit of a train wreck. I'm just saying, when I got married, my marriage shouldn't have lasted two years, but for Jesus and my wife. This is why unity is so key in Jesus' world. In his famous triptych of prayer in John 17, he's, he's praying. You know, he's going to go to the cross and to the resurrection, okay? I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. This oneness idea that's both in the church and in how we are uh, in our world and in marriage. This oneness. And then this other thing, especially when conflict happens, we get into idolatry. I'll explain it. I allow other interests, gods in the case of this text, to compromise my relational commitments. So let me give you a definition of idolatry, okay? I want to give you a definition of idolatry because... He's going he's gonna to talk about this here, and we can't relate with it necessarily because they're, you know, cheating on God, and they're marrying women, in this case particularly, uh, 
these women who also believe in Baal or Baal and, and uh, Moloch, okay? And if you're familiar with the god Moloch, it's a particularly heinous worship experience because you would s- literally sacrifice a child in the, uh, the, the belly, if you will, of this god that was set afire and heated. It was child sacrifice, okay? Part of their worship experience. We have kings in, in Israel's history who actually do this. And my point here is, is that we have a tough time relating with it. The whole idea of idolatry, because we don't know how to do it. Okay, so let me help you. Idolatry is anything or anyone that gets between your relationship with God and God, like who you are and who God is. Any, and so it's, not, it's, it's somewhat amoral in this sense. Not immoral, amoral. Obviously, the Moloch deal and Baal deal is immoral. I'm just saying, like, good things can become an idol in your life. Um, like, for example, what is it that regularly takes you out of worshiping on the weekends? What is it that, what? What did you say? Football. Of course. Yeah, yeah, that's why football season happens and church attendance drops. It's very fascinating. I've often thought, why don't they just come on Saturday nights? That's the actual biblical Sabbath anyway. Whatever. Just saying. Uh, anyway, uh, but, but like what gets in the way of your devotional time? There was a time in my life that surfing, I'm a surfer. If you don't know me, I'm a surfer. So I've been surfing since God created the earth. And, and uh, I love surfing. It's like a deal. And, but there was a time in my life where I was surfing more than I was praying. And I had to give up surfing for like six months. It was like the worst six months of my life. I hated not surfing. But the Lord spoke into me. He goes, Mike, you need to give up surfing. You know what my first question was? Not why. How long? <laughs> And he said, I'll tell you, <laughs> which to me was like, oh, my gosh. Anyway, I, I didn't surf for like six months, and it was because it was getting in the way. So it can be good things, but it can be a child. It can be your spouse, like obviously, particularly here. This is why Paul, the apostle, will later write, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. And anybody who's been in an unequally yoked marriage can tell you all day long the complexities of that. <laughs> oh, but we love each other so much. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, I get it. You're going to learn that one the hard way. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no judgment. I'm just saying it's the way it is. And, and this is what idolatry is. So it's relevant to us, you guys. It's super relevant. Like, what is it in your life that keeps you from growing into being the man of God or the woman of God that God's called you to be? That is an idol. It can be your work. It can be school. It can be sports, obviously. It can be anything. Uh, so you have to watch it all the time. And we're always in the arena of idol worship. Like, we're always there. We're always wrestling with our idols. This is why you have to pay attention and, and watch what you're doing. Now, this past week, I was asking uh, one of the wisest people I know, my wife, Teresa, uh, honey, can you help me make this practical about cheating on God? So we came up with this list. This, these are ways to sort of tell yourself, hey, you're getting in the edge of things. Okay, so. You're doing something secretly that you aren't sharing. 
So for example, you know how I encourage you all the time in your life groups to uh, you know, build accountability partners, so you have a guy, guys with guys, gals with gals, and you, know, you have one or two guys that you can tell them anything, they're not gonna judge you, you can tell them literally anything, we often refer to them as our 2 a.m. friends. If we got thrown in jail because we were drinking and driving, that's who you call. <laughs> you know, that's your guy, right? He's not going to go, what? You're such a jerk. He's going to come get you. He's going to bail you out. Okay? Uh, whatever. Uh, every time you commit a certain behavior, there's a conviction and guilt. How many of you know what this is like? Raise your hand if you know what this is like. If you're not raising your hand, you're totally lying over here. Yeah, okay. I got it. Okay. Uh, uh, there's remorse and regret afterwards. You do it, and it's fun. Remember, sin has its pleasure for the moment. Okay? So when you're doing it, it's fun, but it's, star it's starving your soul. It's actually eating your soul. Um, and that's why we have remorse. Uh, oh, and then this. This is a little bit more subtle. Um, of course, Teresa, she's like the guru, right? Uh, there's a decrease in spiritual self-awareness. This is what's happening in, in Judah in 430 B.C. They, they've lost spiritual, and then they're not hearing the voice of God. Like if you ever stop hearing God speak to you, like now, literally, like on the weekend, if you, if you, if you don't know, if, if God doesn't grab you with something, who, what's the problem? Us, right? You know, like, like, like in your devotional time, not that it, every time it's, ah, oh, the heavens open, God speaks, whatever. I'm just saying, like, like God, God wants to speak to you all the time, all through your day, actually, not just in your devotional time. He wants to talk to you all day. That's kind of Carter's deal last week. He wants to speak into you all the time. The problem is us. We've grown calloused. We've grown spiritually insensitive. This is why you want to, you got to keep the spiritual fire burning in your life. And that's on you, by the way. God's going to do his part, but you have to do your part. This is where the spiritual disciplines are so crucial in your life. This is why I'm on you all the time. Memorize scripture, read your Bibles, whatever. And anyway, that's how you can tell. This is what Malachi's talking about. You know, he, he's now he was applying it to marriage. These guys have divorced their wives. They've married these other wives. And by the way, they're polygamists. Yes, polytheists, yes, but polygamists. You know, they, many of them have multiple wives. And by the way, how many of you agree with me that one spouse is enough? Raise your hands, okay? I mean, it's super complicated, right? Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine it. <laughs> anyway, but that's what's happening. And remember that unity is God's main goal for marriage and the church. Oneness. And this is why Jesus, in, in Mark's gospel, which is basically Peter's gospel, who he was discipled by, right? So in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaking, he says this. Some teachers had come to him and asked, is it lawful for, by the way, Jesus aligned far with the, more with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees were the corrupt, largely many of them were the corruptive element in Jerusalem in the day. They were very corrupt, very uh, money-grubbing, very inappropriate. Uh, and also we know fundamentally that Jesus wouldn't have been a Sadducee. Why? What did Sadducees believe that differentiated them the most from the Pharisees? No resurrection, no afterlife. Which, by the way, is a great... And Pharisees, of course, believed in the resurrection, uh, as obviously did Jesus. Uh, and by the way, that's a good way to remember uh, what Sadducees believed. 
They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay? I mean, they literally didn't believe in the afterlife. Everyone went to Sheol, which, of course, was in the Old Testament. There was a lot of Old Testament. You know, because remember, Scripture unfolds as history goes by. And it becomes clear. And Jesus is the culmination of that revelation, of course. So anyway, Jesus says, uh, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And then Jesus said, it was because of the, your hearts were hard. Remember the callousness? It's because your hearts were hard. So God accommodates into the, you know, culture and context, but he still hates divorce. He just accommodates, okay? And, and Jesus replied, but at the beginning of creation, God then made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and, be, and this is where I get the leave and cleave principle from. And by the way, how many of you are parents? You want, to, you want to raise your children to leave, not cleave. Leave, not cleave. Now, this doesn't mean you lose relationship with them or anything. I'm just saying, you want to ra- remember the movie Failure to Launch? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and be united to his wife, and then they're no longer true, but there's one flesh. This is this one flesh idea. It's true in the people of God. It's true in the church. It's true in marriage. It's this one flesh idea. So how can we nourish our relationships? How can we do it? Okay? I'm going to totally depart from your outline. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul now. Obviously, we're in 430 B.C. in, um, in uh, Malachi. Now we're leaping into the New Testament period. We know that uh, this is, by the way, we call it 2 Corinthians. It's at least Paul's third letter to the Corinthian church. They were messy and complicated, kind of like us. Uh, They had a lot of issues. They were divisive, not very unified. They were kind of charismaniacs, so it was really wonky that way. Um, They they, uh, had immorality. They had all kinds of issues. And Paul deals with it in 1 Corinthians and then another letter that we don't have in our Bibles and then in 2 Corinthians. But I just want you to notice the power of something he says right here. Look at what he says. Uh, Blessed or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now let me talk to you for just a second about the word comfort. The word comfort here, the Greek is the underlying language in your New Testament for the most part. It's, it's, the Greek word is parakaleo. Everybody say that word, parakaleo. And it means, uh, it's actually a word that's used specifically for the Holy Spirit. We say it paraclete. You're familiar with that word. We say it paraclete. It's whatever, it's parakletos would be the Greek word. Anyway, it means comfort. It means intimate, it means present, it means counsel, like it would be, uh, it's sometimes translated, in fact, referring to the Holy Spirit, it's it's translated as the counselor, the comforter, okay? So, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all compassion and all comfort, and then look what it says, who comforts you in all your troubles, Remember, you can't give away what you do not have, okay? Now, I'm talking about your life group, your serving teams, your workplaces, your mission in life. 
the next two words are the most important words. What are they? So that. So that. If you have a paper Bible, underline it, circle it, put a little star. If you have a digital Bible, highlight it. So that. So that. Men, if you're married, you have to experience God's comfort in all of your trouble. And you know we have a lot of it, right? So that you can, and the same word is used. This is why there's so many ways to biblically defend the position that we are the hands and feet of Jesus on the earth. So that we can comfort everyone with the comfort that we've received from God. Do you get it? It's the power of the so that. What's the key to marriage? Pastor Mike, you've been married a long stinking time. What's the deal? How could you possibly do it? It's the power of the so that. It's I have to experience, you know, the comfort of God in all of my troubles so that I can comfort Teresa in her troubles. The problem is this is when, okay, in my case with me and Teresa, right, this is cross-cultural ministry. This is cross-cultural love. A, she's a woman. I'm a man. I, I, I have to get a Ph.D. in, you know, womanology and Teresaology, and it's a moving target. And so it's constant. So I have to be comforted in all my com- from God in all my trouble so that I can comfort her in all her trouble. But it's, it's a moving dynamic issue. This is why your relationship with God is so crucial. And being spirit-led, this is what spirit-leading means. It's so that you can actually be the voice of Jesus, the care of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, the love, the compassion of Jesus in a marriage. But it's true on your street. It's true in your workplace. It's true everywhere you are. You bring it, or you don't, to every line you are in ever in your life. You are either a victim and you are in the line or you are on a mission and you are in the line. It works both ways. You get it? You see the power of it? It's the power of the so that. Okay, so give me some more. How can I practically you know, protect the unity of my relationships? Number one, deal with conflict swiftly. This is why the apostle will write elsewhere, Apostle Paul, Don't let the sun go down while you're still what? Angry. And then he throws it into a spiritual warfare context, and he says, uh, don't give the devil a foothold, which comes way before the famous spiritual warfare chapter of chapter 6. Okay? He begins that conversation actually in chapter 1, but when he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold, he's going to pull you right into Ephesians chapter 6. Because what happens is you begin this little spiritual target internal to your soul and bitterness sets in, right? And you haven't processed it. Now, I'm not saying you always have to like literally process like every single thing before you go to sleep. That would be a push of the context of verse. But it is a value. Because if you don't deal with it, and you know, maybe you need to go to a therapist and deal with it. I've been to a therapist many, many times. Whatever. I'm just saying, uh, if you don't, it, bitterness and bitter root judgment is going to set in. It's going to be a place that the devil's going to play. And remember, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So it's crazy. Bitterness will kill you. Anyway, and then believe the best versus assume the worst. 
This is a great value, by the way, in terms of driving. You know how it is. I'm like you. When somebody cuts off, cuts into me and stuff, how many of you have ever talked to the windshield? <laughs> What's really scary is when your kids begin to talk through the windshield. Where are they learning it from? <laughs> the windshield, yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, and some of you use sign language at that point. Yes, I know. All right. And then ask forgiveness. Don't just say, I'm sorry, ask forgiveness. And give it when needed. Um, my daughter, Rain, uh, eventually I just had to deal with the dysfunction of her mom and I. And uh, we reached out and began a relationship with Rain and Connie, my ex, if you will. And she, Rain, by this time she was about eight when, when I had this particular conversation with her. She was about eight. And I went to one of my holy places. It's one of the holiest places in my world. Um, and it is the Obi Pier. The reason it's holy is because it's sacred to me. I've done prayer walks on it thousands of times at this point. And so I took Rain, my daughter, to the pier and went on a walk with her. And on the walk, I, I, I could, she was eight. So I couldn't tell her, obviously, all of the confusion around her birth and all of that. I couldn't go into that. She's eight years old for crying out loud. So I had to scale it. I'm just saying I had to come to this. I had to ask her forgiveness for my part in lack of leadership, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, lack of a lot of things uh, that resulted in her life because her life was, was uh, very difficult. Her mother never got out of the drug and alcohol culture. She ultimately was a double amputee. I led her to Jesus before she died. So, but I, I, had, I had to ask Rain at eight for forgiveness. And one of the most powerful moments of my life was when she said, of course, Daddy, I forgive you. Now, she's eight. I, I've had to deal with that many times in her life. Because remember, forgiveness is like a point in time, but it's also a series of points, right? And as a parent, you have to lead, remember, you have to lead. You have to, you have to give away the things that God's showing you. To, in this case, specifically, obviously, your, your kids, if you have three kids. And so I've had to deal with it all through her life. She's 46. That was eight. So for 40, whatever it is, <laughs> however long, years, a lot of years, I've had to revisit this occasionally. Hey, honey, how are you doing with your mom and I when you were growing up? You know, how's that working? It's a very complicated thing. And so certain times, I, I, just, I just have to get her alone, you know, and kind of broach the subject, kind of get into it, make it safe for her to talk with me. And there's been different times when it's been very brutal. Marriage and parenting is tough, isn't it? I want to end this way. If you're married, stand up. Now, this will be a little bit complicated because there's a lot of us. But uh, what I want you to do is come up here. All the married people, I want you to come up here. I want to pray specifically for your marriages. Some of you are here with your spouse. Some of you aren't, whatever. That's, you know, that is what it is. Uh, I'm sure there's a story. Uh, some of you are pregnant. And so 
Men, listen up, especially if this is a first-time pregnant thing for you. You clearly don't know what you're doing. You're doing. Look, somebody is inside of your wife. They are eating her. Okay, they're starving her. And so, is she grumpy? Yeah. So what? Lay your life down for your spouse, okay? She'll wake up. She'll come out of it. It'll take a while. But you're there to comfort. That's just your mission. You're there to comfort. And wives as well. So let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, I thank you so much for all these people and their marriages. I know it's complicated. They're all across the age spectrum and all across the how many times, for that matter, and years they've been married. We thank you, God, for your incredible mercy, your chesed, your grace in our lives, the way you work in us, even though we are often crazy, (laughs) that you love us, even though we're cray-cray. It's amazing. But you love us enough to help us, to sometimes discipline us and to call us into this greatness that you have for us. So, God, we pray for that greatness. That greatness will become a part of our dream and our vision for our marriage. And if we have kids with our kids, and if we have adult kids with our adult kids, and if we have grandkids with our grandkids, and then with our great-grandkids, if we live that long, Lord, that we would be this leader, this person who experiences the comfort and compassion of God and then gives it away and gives it to others, Lord, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our lives. And, Lord, I pray for all of us, moving beyond just the married people to all of us, God, because some of us are here, and we really need to experience your compassion and your comfort. And so we pray in faith, oh, God, let's pray this, oh, God, help me to experience your compassion and your comfort, your revelation and wisdom in my life now and this week. I pray this week will be different as a result of this prayer of faith right now. We thank you, God, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Give God a hand.